And he communicates this urgency with one little word. And that little word, if you're looking in verse 27 of chapter 1, is only. Only. And you're thinking, okay. Um, only? How, does he, how is he communicating urgency with this, with this one little word, only? How is he communicating that something's important with that word? Well, imagine you're at work, and you've got a lot going on that day. Your boss or your manager comes by, and they say, hey, I know you've got a lot to do. Emails, projects you're working on, everything else. Only make sure that you get that report for Susan on her desk by the end of the day. What just happened? Did your boss just say that you, you only had one thing to do today? No. Not exactly, but what did your boss communicate? Communicated that that report was the most important thing, right? The most prominent of everything you have to do today was getting that report done. It highlights the one thing and it brought it to the top of the list, okay? So imagine you're sitting in class, your professor says, you know, you've got all these assignments and yeah, they're, they're all due at different points, but only make sure you get this done. You know, it's, it's not that the rest of your assignments are not due at the times that they're due, but this one is the most important. It's at the top of the list. And that's what this little word only can communicate if it's used in different ways, and that's the way that Paul's using it here. Tonight, Paul's going to use this little word to do the same thing, all right? Of everything he could say to this Philippian church, he wants to focus on the one main thing, his priority for them. And his priority for us tonight. So what is it? What is this top priority for Paul, top priority for the church, top priority, especially as the church faces conflict? And it's this. It's that we live as citizens worthy of the gospel. Alright, look in verse 27. Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had, and now here that I still have. So, Paul's saying, of all that I could tell you, of everything there is that I could talk to you about or command you to do or instruct you in, I'm telling you only this, live like worthy citizens of heaven. Stand firm, work hard for the gospel ministry, and do not be afraid. That's what's most on Paul's heart for this Philippian church. And it's the timely word that Christ wants to give us tonight. Now, if, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, it might seem that this command kind of comes out of nowhere. Right? So do you, do you remember where we've been? It really doesn't come out of nowhere, but it might seem that way. If you remember where we've been, Paul's been telling us about his difficult circumstances and how he's facing them with hope. 
In a way, you could say that Paul has already modeled for us what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel. He's in a pretty tough spot at the time he wrote the letter. You'll remember that. He's in prison for preaching the gospel. He's facing possible execution. And instead of responding in fear or responding in in despondency, Paul is full of joy. Because his, his suffering, his imprisonment, has actually not hindered the gospel advancement at all. It's actually fueled the advance of the gospel. How so? Well, he tells us in, back in chapter 1 that a lot of Caesar's own prison guards, a lot of the Praetorian guard, had converted to Christ because of Paul and his bold gospel witness. And not only that, Paul's boldness inspired the church in Rome as they repented of their own fear and they started proclaiming the gospel even more in Rome. Very dangerous scenario. And this advancement brings Paul tremendous joy, even though he was suffering and no doubt didn't like that. And it brought him joy because the goal of his life was Christ. The goal of his life was to see people trust Jesus. It was to bring people to faith in Christ and to cause that faith to increase as they grow. We saw all that last time. His goal was not to preserve himself. His goal was not ultimately to live a comfortable life. His goal was not to be politically correct in the Roman Empire so that no one would get upset with him. The goal of his life was the faith of God's elect. And he knows that if he lives, his life will produce fruit, he says, because God is the one who is working through him. But even if his life ends, Paul still wins, he said. In fact, if it was only up to him, Paul told us last time, he would much prefer death. He would prefer death rather than remaining here. And that's not because he's morbidly, you know, has this fascination with death. It's because death, he says, is an incalculable gain for the believer. Because death ushers us into the presence of our Savior. And that means that he doesn't fear his enemy's threats on his life. Because for him and for every Christian, death is, quote, far better than this life. Now, as we wade into the command here in verse 27, it starts making more sense for why Paul spent so much time detailing out his own life and his own situation to this church. He's already modeled everything he's going to call this church to do in this text. Paul himself is living in a way that is worthy of the gospel. He's standing firm. He's contending for the gospel in the midst of Rome. And he's not frightened by his opponents. And that's because he knows what God is doing in the midst of suffering. So here, Paul is now turning the corner in this letter and he's calling us out directly. He's not given any commands yet in the letter except now at this point, now the the tables are turning and he's calling on the entire church at Philippi and by extension, us in Boundless tonight to live lives, he says, that are worthy of the gospel. So tonight, we're going to look in depth at this command. And the sweet thing about this passage 
is that Paul unpacks the command for us. So he tells us what it looks like. He spells out what he's looking for when he's talking about living a life worthy of the gospel. He spells out what he wants to see in our churches. He spells out what it should look like right in the middle of a hostile environment. In his case, the Roman Empire. In our case, the Western culture that's devolving quickly. He spells out what it looks like in this hostile environment to live worthy of the gospel. Now, before we get to how Paul fleshes out this command, let's just take a second and unpack the command itself in verse 27. There's only one command in this this paragraph, and it's in verse 27. The command is, let your manner of life, he says, verse 27, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's the imperative. So what is Paul getting at? This introduction. What's Paul getting at when he calls us to live worthy of the gospel? Well, first let's look at this verb that Paul uses. Now, normally, when Paul is talking about how he wants the church to live, he uses the verb walk. You guys probably read his letters before, and you kind of notice to walk. You know, walk in this way, even at different points. He says, walk worthy. You know, same, same phrase here. But, but here, in this case, he uses a different verb. Now, at its heart, the verb has to do with how we live, how we live our lives. So, again, not anything different there. The ESV translates it as manner of life. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And that's good. But this verb, in some contexts, has the nuance of, we might say, civic duties. Civic duties. It has to do with how a citizen is obligated to live in light of the fact that they're citizens of that community. Now, if you're reading from an ESV, you'll you'll notice there's a footnote here after the, the word worthy. And that footnote says, the Greek says, only behave as citizens worthy. So even the ESV kind of gives you that more literal Greek translation in the footnote. And you can see there that it involves the citizenship idea. Behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Now, the Philippians knew all about civic duties, right? Philippi was a Roman colony, and Roman citizenship was a prized possession in this colony. But for Paul, the command to live as a worthy citizen wasn't in reference to Rome. It's in reference to heaven. Because as Paul says over in chapter 3, that's where our citizenship resides. Look over in chapter 3, verse 20. He's contrasting the enemies of the cross, probably the same people that he references in our text, the enemies of the cross with with us. And he says in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So this idea of our citizenship in heaven, this citizenship word is very similar to the verb in, in our text over in chapter 1, verse 27. So there's a connection even in the context that citizenship is on Paul's mind. 
So if we come back to chapter 1, what's Paul saying here? Paul's subtly reminding us that we are ultimately citizens of heaven and we should live like it. We're ultimately citizens of heaven and heaven's kingdom and so, because we've been transferred into heaven's kingdom, our lives should begin to reflect that new reality. We should live like we're citizens there. We don't belong to this sinful earth anymore. And we aren't held captive to its values. Instead, through the gospel of Christ, He has given us access to this heavenly homeland. And we're citizens of that homeland now. And we're bringing the homeland's values to earth. And earth is no friendly place for a citizen of heaven because the earth is hostile to heaven and its ways. Paul is implying that we as the church are a colony of heaven. We're representing the kingdom of heaven right here on earth. And as that colony, God is going to use us to colonize more of the earth. So, Paul says we need to live our lives in a way that's worthy of the gospel. That's, that's in accord with the good news we've received that's in line with the citizenship of heaven. We need to represent heaven well as we seek to colonize the earth. So, I'm calling tonight's message Living Like Citizens of Heaven. And in the rest of this verse, Paul's going to unpack what he is envisioning for the Philippians and for us as we live that worthy life like citizens of the heavenly kingdom. He's already given us his example of what it looks like in his own life, but now he's going to spell it out for us. Now, lest we misunderstand as we're kind of getting into this, he's not telling us, when he's saying living worthy of the gospel, he's not saying you're you're living in a way that's, that's meriting you the gospel, that's meriting you a good standing with Christ. That's not what he means by worthy. Christ merited that for us. We've been seeing that throughout our different topics that we've been looking at. Christ earned our status as kingdom citizens. And we get access to that by faith. Living worthy of the gospel is when our lives begin to reflect, come in line with that reality of what we already possess. That's what Paul's saying here. And so there's, there's three, really, three essential pursuits in this passage. Three pursuits of a, a, a citizen of heaven. Right? So if, if you want to be a faithful Heavenly citizen here on earth. Paul's going to outline these really three, three pursuits, these three objectives, or you might say three essential pursuits to live a life worthy of the gospel. And here they are. Number one, we'll call this first one the pursuit of gospel endurance. If we're going to be a faithful citizen of heaven, we need to stand firm while we're on earth. Or as I'm saying, we need to pursue gospel endurance. We see this in verse 27. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, here it is, I may hear of you that you are standing firm 
in one spirit. Standing firm in one spirit. Paul says he wants this church to live like citizens of heaven so that he hears certain things about. Paul's in prison. He's planning to visit them if he gets released. But whether or not that happens, he's saying, I want you to live this way as worthy of the gospel so that I hear something about you. And what I hear, the first thing he wants to hear, he says, this first essential pursuit of a worthy life is that we learn to stand firm in one spirit. Or like I'm saying here, it's the pursuit of gospel endurance. So let's take this statement apart and see what Paul's calling us to here. He wants to hear that these Philippians and us today, that we're standing firm. So if Paul started this with kind of a metaphor of citizenship and civic duty, now he sort of shifts that metaphor a little bit to a military metaphor. Now he is envisioning us as an army. And he's calling us to stand firm, to sort of dig our heels in as we face significant opposition on earth. To an earth that belongs to the heavenly king, but's opposed to his reign. So that means there's going to be opposition, and so as heavenly citizens, we must be prepared to stand firm, to dig our heels in. One of the sobering and yet encouraging things for us to realize is that right now, today, in this moment, We are in a very real war. In a war that's greater than the the cyber war with China. In a war that's greater than, you know, the war between the right and the left. It's a war against our satanic enemies in the battle for souls. And we have to see that we're facing very real and very powerful enemies. Over in Ephesians 6, Paul uses similar language, and there he tells us that we're in one of the most, we are in the most significant of battles. And there he calls us, like here, to stand against Satan and his hordes. And here in this context, to stand means that we don't give any ground to the enemy, it means we don't cede our position, we don't cede in doctrine. And we don't see it in practice from what the apostles have taught. We don't see it ethically, even though we face a potential onslaught for the stand. He's calling us not to cave from the pressure. Instead, we we sort of lock our shields together, you know, as we stand in one spirit. That's what he says here. Standing firm in one spirit. Paul's saying if we're going to stand, we've got to stand together as one. We have to stand in unity. We cannot be fighting. We can't be bickering amongst ourselves in boundless. We can't gossip about each other. We can't hold grudges and we can't harbor offenses. We have to forgive. We have to pursue reconciliation. Why? Because if our spirits are at odds... That means the enemy has broken through our line of shields. He is in our midst. He's confusing us. He's causing us to fight each other instead of the real enemy. So look, we we won't have any hope 
of staying faithful, of staying, of enduring the coming days, if we cannot forgive each other right now. If we can't stay unified, we won't stay on mission if we don't know how to seek someone's forgiveness and boundless when we say something stupid or unkind. As you strive to do this, to maintain and strengthen unity, as you seek to cultivate deep relationships where you forgive, where you encourage, where you even warn others, what are you doing? Well, in this text, you're actually mending the breach in the shields. You're closing the gap. You're strengthening our corporate defenses and you're enabling our church to stand firm. So the next time you're tempted to take offense and grow resentful, think, well, hang on. If I let this go, if I let this fester, I'm weakening our ability at Timberlake to stand as a church. I'm opening up a breach in the shield line. But if I go reconcile, if I humble myself and forgive, if I confess my sin to another believer, I'm actively strengthening this church to persevere in the days ahead because we're cultivating unity. And Paul says here that unity enables us to stand firm. We stand firm in one spirit. So that's our first pursuit, the pursuit of standing firm, the pursuit of gospel endurance, he says. That happens through unity. But it would be a mistake to think that Paul here envisions this standing firm as a defensive posture only. In fact, what Paul goes on to say reveals that in his mind, standing firm also includes advancing. And that leads us to our second pursuit, which we'll call the pursuit of gospel advancement. The pursuit of gospel advancement. He says... Pick it back up in the ha- halfway through. That I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Here it is. With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So Paul is calling us here to actually make progress in gospel ministry. There's an offensive element to this. He's calling us to strive together to see others come to faith and progress in faith. In other words, he's calling us to multiply more colonies of heaven's kingdom on earth. So, let's just let's take a look at what he's saying here. Now, let me point something out about the grammar here. All right? Can you hang with me for a second? This is hard to see in English, but Paul's actually further elaborating what he means when he tells us to stand firm. So in other words, standing firm involves some more ideas. It involves on the one hand, like we're saying here, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's one thing it involves, but it also involves kind of negatively not being frightened, Paul's going to go on to say, not being frightened in anything by your opponents. So 
standing firm involves working hard to advance gospel ministry, and it also involves not being afraid. Okay? If you want to think about what is standing firm, in Paul's mind, it involves those two components. Because those are participles that are dependent on the standing firm. It's the main verb. So, standing involves these things, and for our outline, I'm going to pull out both of those as our second and third pursuits. So our second pursuit is this gospel advancement. So let's focus in on that advancing here in, in, in this pursuit. Paul says here that endurance or standing firm involves making advances for Christ. So, if we go back to our military analogy, how many of you have seen those movies about like the ancient Spartans? Right? Okay, one, one of you. Great. Um, so, basically what happens, you know, you've got these shields, the shield line forms, these guys, you know, and then they're, the shield forms on top, and then all of a sudden, they're in unison, and there'll, there'll be some kind of command, you know, advance, and so they all push at the same time. And that's kind of a good picture of what we're talking about here. We're in a line, we're, we're in, you know, being hit, with opposition, and then advance. And we're all pushing forward at the same time. That's how standing and advancing kind of work together. So let's nail down exactly what advancing, uh, or let's nail down what's, what, in Paul's mind, what's advancing. What are we advancing in? Paul says we're striving side by side for something in particular, and he says it's for the faith of the gospel. You see that? So what does he mean when he says that? He's talking about our goal. He's talking about what we're striving for, what we're aiming at. And what is it? Paul says it's faith. And in particular, it's faith that I think we could say is produced by the gospel. Meaning faith that comes from gospel preaching, from gospel ministry. I think that's the expanded idea of this short little phrase, the faith of the gospel. is faith that's produced by the gospel. In other words, our goal, what Paul's telling us to strive for, is to see people come to faith in Jesus, in conversion, and also to see that that faith is strengthened as they grow up to maturity. Right? So, faith in conversion and faith in maturity. And Paul says that should be the goal of the church. Now think about that for a second. Paul's saying this is the goal of the colony of heaven. This is the goal of every citizen of heaven. And we, it's important that we're all together in this because he says we're, we're going to strive in this with one mind. So that means we all have to think this way. This has to be, we all must adopt this as our ultimate goal. Or the colonies of heaven won't advance. Does it make sense? This goal was certainly Paul's main goal. Remember how he could rejoice amidst his suffering? How could he do that? Because his number one goal was being fulfilled. Suffering could not stop it. Because his goal was to see 
Faith. Faith in conversion and faith being strengthened. People were coming to faith in Christ in the Praetorian Guard and other Christians' faith were being strengthened as they were emboldened to share the Gospel. So if our ultimate goals for our lives are anything other than this, we will be despondent, we will be easily discouraged, we will be quick to complain, we will be argumentative, we will be joyless. We'll, be, we'll sulk when we don't get our way. We will be quick to pity ourselves. And if that's any of you, reveals your goals are off, <laughs> right? In other words, we won't have true and lasting joy like Paul if we have some other competing goal for why we're living our life. So we have to ask ourselves the question, does my life reflect that my main goal is the growth and expansion of faith in Christ? And it has to start with us. Is my goal for my life the increase of my faith in Christ? Is that what I want more than anything else? Because if it's not, you're not going to have joy. Because that's God's goal for you. And that's what He's shaping everything toward in your life. And that's the most precious thing about you. Is your faith. And how He's testing it, growing it. So it has to start here. Is this my greatest goal for my life? And then, next, is a great burden of yours to see others come to trust Him too? To see people dead in sin, having their eyes opened and faith in Christ ignited through gospel ministry? Are you eager to see your fellow church members make progress in trusting Jesus? Does this goal reign over and influence your other goals. Like getting married, finding friends, starting a career, having a family. Or do those other goals hold ultimate sway in your heart? Now, I realize these are probing questions. But I want you to see something. This is the greatest goal that we could live for. It's the most significant and fulfilling and transcendent goal that we could possibly have for ourselves. And it can powerfully influence all the other goals. What do I mean? All right, well, let's take the, the goal to have a career. Is that bad? Yes or no? No, it is not. We need money. Work is good. God made it, right? So the goal to have a career is a good goal. Nothing wrong with working hard and making money. But when the goal of faith, meaning seeing faith happen and, and strengthened in and through the church and all those things, when that goal undergirds the goal to have a career, then it energizes that goal for a career. The workplace becomes an environment where you can put Christ on display by your work ethic 
by your attitude, and by your productivity. The money you earn goes to support your family and that wife that you're shepherding, those kids that you're evangelizing, right? So you can keep doing that. Some of the surplus money that you earn can go to help support church planting and gospel ministry. Your coworkers, your unbelieving coworkers, are now opportunities for evangelism to befriend them and get to know them so you can interact with them around the gospel. Even the difficulties at work they become opportunities for your own faith to be strengthened. Even hostilities you might face for the sake of Christ at work become opportunities for the strengthening and development of your own faith. And the list goes on and on, and you will find yourself rejoicing like Paul, even if things are going the opposite of the way that you had hoped. Because your ultimate goal the growth of your own faith, the glory of Christ, the opportunity to evangelize others, that's not thwarted by the difficulties. And my point here is that even something like work or marriage or family or friends, all of that can serve the greater goal of advancement of faith that Paul is talking about here in so many ways. All of life opens up. Now, let's get back to this text and make a few more observations, okay? Paul, I want you to notice how Paul describes this advancement in ministry. Does he call it a walk in the park? How does he describe it? You know? You're college students, can you read? Striving. Striving is how the ESV translates that. Striving. The point is that to help others grow in faith, to evangelize, is labor-intensive. We're tempted to kind of casually think, yeah, my disciple. Kind of cool. You know, I share the gospel. It happened. Kind of keep going about our life. Paul's saying this is striving. This is labor intensive. It's going to take energy. It will be difficult. It will require resources. It will cost us time. It may cost us our jobs and possibly even our lives. That's striving, contending, fighting for the faith of the gospel. And here, Paul is calling the entire church to this kind of all-in striving to see faith developed in others. We expect pastors to have this kind of attitude. And rightly so. We should definitely be out in front. We should be modeling this kind of all-in, labor-intensive pursuit to see others grow in faith. But Paul's not talking to pastors here. He's talking to the whole church, the entire Philippian church. And if he were standing here tonight, he would say the same thing to this boundless group tonight. To think of gospel ministry as labor-intensive and to prepare yourself for that. 
Now, let me just caveat this for a second. Paul's not saying to forsake all your other pursuits, like studying, working, any other good pursuit, just so you can evangelize and disciple people. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that we should exert effort in evangelism and discipleship. In other words, when we think of sharing the gospel, we should realize it's going to require effort. When we think of helping another person grow, we should realize it's going to cost us time and energy. And when we think of ourselves and our own growth in faith, it's going to be a similar kind of labor, a similar kind of striving. Growth in faith isn't just automatic. It's not just going to happen because we thought maybe that'd be cool. It takes effort, intentionality, and a diligent pursuit. It's a striving to accomplish this goal. You're not just going to let go and let God, you know. That runs in the face of what Paul's saying right here. And Paul says this striving for faith in others, this happens together as a church. You're not the lone ranger. You're not in some parachurch ministry just kind of doing your thing outside of the context of local church. He's saying right here, this gospel ministry is happening in and through the context of the local church. We strive, he says, side by side. It's actually one word, striving, the verb. There's a prefix to it. And it means we strive with, we strive together. And the ESV translates this side by side. It's a good translation. And I love this because Paul reminds us that both in evangelism and discipleship, that this is a team effort. Which is why we've got to all have the same goal. You know, this is most important. We've got to help each other. Because it's a team effort. We all need everybody participating in this if the body's going to grow. In other words, all of us are necessary for the body to make progress. We've all been given gifts, and the Spirit intends to use those gifts in all of us to help others come to faith in Christ and to help others grow in that faith in Christ. So, let me just give you an example. One of you might be gifted in evangelism. You might thrive on opportunities to share the gospel. I mean, it like juices you up. And you just like, you think about it, plot for it, like, yeah, you know, you're ready to go. But you might not have a house or anything to kind of facilitate that, but somebody else might. And they might be very hospitable. And they might be really, they might be really good at that. Even though it kind of scares a snot out of them to evangelize. Another person might have money, you know, because... Half of you guys are poor. So, and they think, hey, I can finance this meal, right? So let me go take care of that, and I'll provide the meal. You, get, you got the house. You guys got the, you know, you got the evangelism gifts. You're a crazy kind of bull in a china shop, so come on, you know? Another person might have the gift of mercy, and so it's kind of, they're maybe a little bit timid, just like super bold, but man, they can anticipate a need and just meet that need and really draw people out and ask good questions. And so they're great with, with unbelievers who are suffering. And it's amazing to see how these folks can work together to arrange a meal with people they're evangelizing. One buys the food, another provides a home, another empathizes with the suffering, and another gently but clearly presents the gospel. And all the while, the rest of the assembly, we all know about it, and we're interceding in prayer. That striving together, side by side, 
for the faith of the gospel, and in particular for evangelism. It's one example. Among many I could cite, even discipleship in the church works the same way. Right? We all have a multitude of gifts, and it's good to influence one another and even in our discipleship of others. So I just want to encourage you as I'm coming in, I know I'm, I'm, I'm hammering this hard, but day in and day out, I'm talking with you, you guys, and I'm fielding texts and you know, messages and questions after sermons about, hey, I was interacting with this guy. I was talking on this scenario. I, because you love them. You want to see them experience what you've experienced. And you're, you're actively striving for the faith of the gospel. And some of you are here tonight because someone loved you enough to tell you the gospel in this room. And you came to faith in Christ through their, their love for you and faithfulness to you. And it is truly a thrill to be your pastor. And, you know, I resonate with Paul. You know, I hear that you are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You know, it's just like I, I, I hear these things. Get them in messages. But if you're not doing this, how could you get in the flow of this sort of gospel advancement? How could you kind of make this the, the heartbeat of your life? Well, it starts, like we said, it starts with you. It starts with your own growth in faith. So this isn't your heartbeat because there's lies involved and you've kind of bought into those. Because you're not trusting Jesus and you're not making this the central thrust of your life. So we have to start here. Before we start about talking about evangelism and discipleship, we have to start here. With you trusting Jesus, are you actively trusting Jesus or are there areas of your life you're refusing to entrust to him? Have you come to him? Have you bowed the knee in faith to Christ? Is he your king? Does he call all the shots? We have to start there. You have to humble yourself, reach out for help, and we will do our best to strengthen your faith. Because you can't truly influence others to trust Jesus if you're not trusting him. But take heart, because God has given us the church to help us grow and he wants to use you in this gospel advancement. He wants to get you in the flow. He doesn't want to keep you on the sidelines. He wants to get you in the flow. And then as you come to him and you're growing, find others in Boundless who are evangelizing and discipling and try to observe them doing it. Just invite yourself to go along with them whenever they're doing it. Because there's different groups that do it in different ways. Try to get, try to get up to, next to somebody who's doing it. Ask them if you can be involved and as you're watching them do it, pray. Pray that God saves and sanctifies these folks in these interactions, in these Bible studies, in these, you know, in these meetings or dinners or whatever. And then for yourself, as you're growing, look for those opportunities all around you. Because God has given you divine opportunities with family members, with roommates, with co-workers, with the people you meet. And start there. Aim for seeing them come to entrust themselves to Jesus. Pray for opportunities. Pray for boldness for yourself, because we're afraid, right? Pray for clarity of speech, because we don't know what to say. You know, then interact. Just open your mouth. Get to know them. Ask, figure out how they're thinking about their life and what, what motivates them. Ask them questions. Help them interpret their lives according to what the Scriptures say, according to what's actually true. Help them see when they're in sin and tell them about the danger of that. Tell them about God's solution in Christ. And as a bottom line, just do the best you can. 
Because God's sovereign over this whole thing. Okay, you, can, you can't mess it up. If all else fails, just invite them to spend time with your other church friends who have different gifts and they can help you influence them. And when it comes to strengthening the faith of others in the church, I would just encourage you to find ways to actively and intentionally love your fellow church members. Find ways you can start praying for your friends and actually pray for them on a consistent basis. Find ways you can provide practical help to others here at Timberlake. Those are some great initial ways to start strengthening the faith of other believers here at Timberlake. I don't know know what the needs are. Well, go meet someone. Go talk to them in the services. And if you want, like, instant needs, go find somebody that looks like they're 80 or older. Introduce yourself to them. Befriend them. Come back to them next week. Build a relationship. And then say, hey, I would love to help you. I'm sure there's, like, leaves that need to be raked or something. You know, you're 80. They'll probably laugh, you know. But, hey, that's, you don't need to wait on a pastor to go tell you to do that or, or set that up for you. So start there. If, that's, if you want to get in the flow, start with yourself. Observe others as they're doing it. Kind of get in the flow and just make simple, small changes. Okay? So we've seen two of these three pursuits. And if we're going to live as citizens worthy of the gospel, we've got to pursue gospel endurance. Number one, we have to also pursue this gospel advancement. That looks like making progress. But there's another side to this coin. It's not just gospel advancement, but there's also gospel courage that we need to pursue. Because obviously, even as we're talking about these things, there's, you feel the fear, don't you? Like, oh my goodness. I feel it too. Your pastors aren't immune. Okay? We all feel this need that we have for courage. We feel this pressure from the world that seeks to frighten us and intimidate us. And Paul looks us right in the face. And he says, I want to hear that you are not frightened in anything by your opponents. I bet he said it with a twinkle in his eye. <laughs> As he's like, you know, chained to this guard who could execute him at any moment. And he's saying, I don't want you to be afraid. I want to hear that you're not afraid. And we unpacked that, I forget when it was, last week or the week before, about the fear of death. So if you missed that, go check that out. Because the fear of death is motivates, a, it leads to a lot of our other fears. But Paul is saying, okay, we've got to pursue gospel courage. This third and final pursuit that we find here is the pursuit of courage. If we're going to live worthy of the gospel, if we're going to be faithful citizens of heaven, we cannot let fear dictate our lives, even in the face of of severe opposition. Now, this runs in the face of like all of our experience, right? Everything we experience. Who is not afraid when we face opposition for Christ's sake? It seems almost impossible not to be afraid when we think of what could potentially happen to us 
here in the West if things continue on the trajectory that they're on. But Paul looks us in the eye and with this sort of joyful resolve says, don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. So let's, let's try to unpack this a little bit, try to get in his mind here. What, let's look a little more carefully at what Paul says in this verse. When Paul is encouraging us not to be frightened, as the ESV translates it, he's essentially encouraging us not to be intimidated. That's better. Think of this as intimidation. Don't be intimidated. It's more than just being kind of frightened or scared. In Philippi, their secular opponents were trying to intimidate them to back off the mission. They were trying to intimidate them to stop sharing the gospel and and stop living holy lives. Paul's going to go on to call this, this, this culture a crooked and twisted generation over in chapter 2, verse 14. Over in chapter 3, he's going, to say, he's, going to tell that, he's going to call these folks enemies, and he says that they have their minds set on earthly things, glorying in their shame. So the church and its gospel posed a threat to their lifestyle. It posed a threat to their, their pleasures that were going to lead to their destruction. It posed a threat to sort of their, their perceived peace that they had. And preaching Jesus as Lord, as the exclusive God of heaven and earth, as the judge that's coming, that threatened their worship as well. So it appears the Philippians were beginning to experience quite a bit of hostility. Paul even compares it to his own conflict. He says in verse 30, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So he's saying, you're, what's happening to you in Philippi parallels what's happening to me in Rome and parallels what happened to me at the beginning in Philippi, which included him getting beaten and thrown in jail. So we don't know exactly what was happening, but their opponents were trying to marginalize the Christians in that society. They may have falsely accused them and tried to find ways to imprison them. Some may have faced physical abuse and possibly even death. And that's some severe intimidation, I would say. Those are the things that keep me awake at night as I kind of forecast that out and think, what if that hits us, when it hits us? And even though we're not facing the same level of intimidation, at least not yet, there's still serious pressure to be silent, isn't there? To keep your religion private. To not impose what you think on other people. You know? It's getting to the point that to merely mention the Bible or read from its more controversial portions on any public platform, that's akin to committing a hate crime. But not only is there pressure to not evangelize, but there's also an active pressure to affirm things we don't believe. Like the sinful lifestyles, sinful desires of those who are walking in rebellion against God. So we certainly face intimidation. The social media mob is enough to completely ruin someone's life, isn't it? Slander and false accusations abound. We're afraid of being marginalized by our families or making life harder for ourselves at work. Even though our situation is not as bad as Philippi's, we still feel that intimidation, don't we? But like I said, Paul looks us in the eye and he tells us, Do not be afraid of any of it. 
Not one bit of it. He's very emphatic in the Greek text. He says, don't be frightened in absolutely anything. Now, later in the letter, over in chapter 4, he's going to shepherd us in depth on how to deal with this fear. Okay? But even here, he gives us some guidance on where this courage comes from. The Spirit produces this courage in our hearts as we know some things about the opposition itself. As we believe the truth about what God's doing in the midst of the opposition. And that's how Paul ends this passage, and that's where we'll end. He ends it by by basically confronting some of our wrong thinking when it comes to opposition and persecution. So, I want to end tonight by looking at some courage-inducing realities. We're just going to hit these kind of in bullet form, because we'll look at them as we go through the letter. These realities, these truths that, that produce courage in our hearts. And that's why Paul put them here at the end of this paragraph. He knows these are scary things. He had to mortify his own fears. It's not automatic. Paul's not a superhuman. And he does it with these kinds of truths. What do we have to know? Well, initially, we have to know that opposition is a sign that we're on the right path. We've got to know that when when these things hit and we're trying to respond to it, that this is right where God wants us. That we're on the right path. Notice what he says here. He says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. What's he mean? He's saying... That for the ones that are opposing you, their very opposition to you indicates that they're going to be destroyed. And the fact that they're opposing you, like they oppose Jesus, indicates that like him, you're going to be raised from the dead and inherit the new heavens and the new earth. Now we have to think this way because we're tempted to think that we're on the wrong path when it hits. We're tempted to think that something is not right because we're facing opposition. Because that family member just blew up at you. Because now you're, now you're being mocked at work because you kind of took a stand and now nobody likes you. And they give you all the bad shifts or whatever it may be. It's like, gosh, something's wrong. This isn't good. We, we wonder, God, have you abandoned me? Do you not love me or my family? Are you in control, really? But Paul is saying, you have to throw all that out of your mind. Because the fact that you're being opposed for the gospel means that you are on the right path. The path of redemption. The path of salvation. That it, it belongs to you. So we've got to know that. We have to know that difficulty, hardship is from God's good and sovereign hand. It's from God's good and sovereign hand, as hard as that is for us to kind of wrap our minds around. Not only is it a sign and an indicator that we're on the right path, 
but it's also, it's also from God's own hand. He says this, middle of verse 28, this is, or that is from God. And again, it almost makes it sound like your salvation is from God, which it is. But Paul's point, I think, in this context, in the grammar here, is he's grabbing all of this idea and saying, everything is from God's hand. It's from God, including the suffering. That's because we've got to know that even difficulty is from God. And it's achieving His good and wise purposes. And here's where it gets super encouraging. Is that if it's from God to us, then guess what the suffering will not do? It will not capsize your faith. It won't. Because He has you. And it's from Him. Like, this is liberating. Because we look at these things in the future and we think, how are we going to stand? But they're in God's hand. He's bringing them. It will not capsize us. He won't let us forsake Him. He will keep us to the end. And He intends every trial. He will force every trial to accomplish His good and glorious purposes for you. He will not let you go. And the only reason we can have that assurance is because the trials, too, are in His hands. So we've got to know we're on the right path. It's God's good and sovereign hand giving us these things. And we have to also know that this is a gracious, gracious privilege. It is not God punishing you. It's not God being angry with you. It is a privilege. It means He's counting you worthy to suffer. He says, this is from God. For it has been granted to you. It's been gifted to you. This is a gracious gift. This is jarring because typically this language is used of our salvation. And he's saying, it's been graciously given to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe. That's a gracious gift too. Your faith. But not only that, but to suffer also for His sake. Paul, in his mind, understands that his imprisonment and possible execution was because God had counted him worthy. That it was his privilege to follow in the footsteps of Christ. That it would result in an infinite amount of reward in the coming new creation. And that God had chosen him to endure that so that he would receive that. When we hit trials and difficulties, we are tempted to self-pity. We're tempted to think, it's the worst thing for me right now. 
but it is a privilege if we could see it from the kingdom side. If we could see all that will accrue to you because of the trial, you would rejoice every time. And finally, we got to know that we are following in the footsteps of the faithful when we suffer. We're following in the footsteps of the faithful. He says that we're engaged in the same conflict that the Philippians are engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. So I think the point here, one of the points of, of this is he's, he's drawn this out and it, it confirms the fact that everything he wrote to us in chapter 1 was for, for our edification. For, he's giving us his example of how to endure it. But he's also making the parallel here that when we suffer, we're engaged in the line of the faithful throughout, throughout history, Paul being one of them. And that's because in suffering we often feel alone, feel abandoned. And it is a sweet encouragement to know that we are not alone, that we are in the midst of a faithful line of believers who have have endured through the century. Now, I just want to say that how, how, do, you, how do you cultivate this courage? We'll, just, we'll end here. How do you cultivate this courage? You cultivate it the same way you cultivate anything else in the Christian life, and that is by loading your mind up with the truths that we're seeing here, and yet go back and review even the other sermons that we learned in, in Philippians 1. Pull out those, those realities, those, those truths that are big, high-level truths that are soul-stirring. You have to load up your mind with those truths that have to become convictional for you. And then when you get these moments where you are faced with debilitating fear, you choose, not feel, you choose to believe what you know and you act against your fear and in the face of your fear and you do what you know is right. You do what you know is true. And that is the path. The Spirit uses that, takes that, and causes you to mortify your fear. And the day in, day out choice by faith to believe what we're seeing here and choose to obey Him in this moment is the path out. It's the path to mortify your your fearful heart and to produce the spiritual courage that's necessary to endure. So, If we want to live a life worthy of the gospel, Paul's saying we have to be pursuing these things. Endurance, advancement, it's got to be our goal. We want to see it advance. We want to colonize the earth. Um, And we've got to be full of courage because there will be opposition. And we don't need to be frightened by any of it. This is how the king of heaven plans to colonize the earth. Through his citizens who stand firm, who strive for the faith of others, and who are not afraid of our enemies. If we want to make a difference in the short life that we have, we have to make these pursuits our pursuits. All right, let's pray. Father, we know that we are incapable of doing this without you, and yet you've given us your spirit. So we look to him tonight, We are thankful 
that we belong to you, that you have granted us this kingdom citizenship, this heavenly citizenship through our King, who's been resurrected, is enthroned in heaven over this earth, and is coming back to make this place a world of righteousness. The gospel of the kingdom is going forward, and we want to be part of that, Lord, so we pray that you would strengthen us, give us courage, help us to adopt the goal of faith as our ultimate goal, and help us to endure today and in the days ahead. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.